0: Good morning. I'm Aya. I'm, I'm Wimala. Not Aya anymore. I'm Wimala. And it's Sunday, January 2nd. We have lots of snow. All day yesterday we had snow. It was the first time the weather prediction was right on target in quite a while. So they were very accurate with everything. So I'm impressed. I have, I'm not going to give up any, my uh, faith in the, <laughs> the National Weather Service. I'm just going to just be okay with whatever happens. But it it uh, it gave us a a day to kind of be inside yesterday, and now things are c- clear and it's sunny. So uh, everything changes, right? The the weather is just like us, just like the rest of the world. It's constantly changing. That's Anicha. That's that's the true condition of the world. So today I want to read uh, where I left off in Wisdom is Bliss by Robert Thurman. And uh, I love this book. Now in this section we're on, I'm reading and I might skip a few paragraphs but I'd like to read more about realistic motivation, what we call right intention usually, but I really like his use of the word realistic and I love Bhante G's use of the word harmonious and I even like appropriate Um, so we're talking about ways to look at these words without making them be so dualistic like there's right and there's wrong but these are the ways as part of the Eightfold Path these are the ways that are, this creates the path to true happiness for us and to true, uh, a true liberation. So we can follow. And I think Robert Furman uses the term super when he talks about super, add super to it. Um, that's also that the more spiritual part of the path. There's what we call them in, uh, it's often talked about as the mundane and the supra mundane. So one is just the path of leading a, a life that leads us to happiness. Even if we're still on the wheel of uh, samsara, we're still finding, it's a, still a path that helps us have a satisfying, happy life. And uh, the supramundane is when we continue to follow that path and it becomes our path to liberation, to spiritual liberation, so uh, we can work with it our entire lives. It serves us very well. We always can go deeper and uh, reach a deeper level of understanding. The same way we do from the first day that we are intrigued by the teachings of the Buddha, that all, oh, if we, if that leads into changes in our life and our life becomes happier, um, then, then we continue on that path because it works for us. And it leads to more and more understanding about the nature of reality. So we're always working with our minds and with how we see things. If we see clearly if, or if we see through a veil. So his chapter on, Realistic motivation, I think, is very interesting. And he does talk about some of the differences between traditional Theravada, um, uh, Buddhism and Mahayana or Tibetan Buddhism in his case. And, uh, I don't want to get too deep into that because I think his view of the world is, is the same. Is he's, uh, he's looking at the differences but i think in a positive way just understanding the the nature of those differences historically but i'm not going to get into any kind of deep um, discussion at all of the differences because i think they're just they're they're more frameworks for the same truths so let me find the place where I stopped when we're talking about um, he he was talking when we read last on Friday about the 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 feel, the belief by some that nirvana or nibbana is a separate place like a really like a heaven that we would go to and escape samsara, and he's talking about the non-dualistic. The final hideout of duality is the duality between the relative world and an imagined non-relational reality located outside of it and apart from it, yet accessible to me. So this self-centric psychosis about nibbana does not get beyond the first and second noble truths, as long as one misknows reality, feels separate from others, and reifies or uh, reifies uh, you know asserts or lifts up the self as the real thing, thinking that others are very different in birth, life, death, and relationships are all unsatisfactory. They cause suffering. And we read that last time we ended on that. The dualistic understanding of a Nibbana, or Nirvana in Sanskrit, apart from the world around me, the way I understood Nirvana at first, fit with my immature escapist feeling that I wanted to reach a pure space away from everything. I thought one had to leave the world to find peace and satisfaction. So I misunderstood the real meaning of nirvana. Still, I was very gung-ho. But Geshe Wangya saw this escapism in me just as the Buddha saw that tendency when he was teaching egoistic, mostly male Brahmins and saw their escapism, their seeking after some place to get away from it all, to a road less traveled, or perhaps a road of no more travel. The fact that the goal of nirvana nibbana, can be misperceived as a realm apart makes it a less effective path of a seeker's evolution because it leads to an addiction to quietistic states of aloofness, dwelling happily in contemplative realms, wherein one one cannot easily develop one's compassion for others. Compassion is the most important aspect of full enlightenment because without it, one too easily enters a state of being unmoved emotionally. By the way, there are people who achieve awakening without compassion. They do become a kind of saint because they are beyond crude drives that lead them to cause harm to others. But since they see through others too easily, their motivation to love them and help them free themselves, becomes weak. They tend to rely on full Buddhas, those who become awake and nurture compassion, to do this job, rather than feeling the intense motivation to become Buddhas themselves, to take responsibility for others. The fourth noble truth, the path, seems sensible to me. I didn't like that the eighth branch was meditation or samadhi. And that, that we, samadhi can also be stability of mind or it's often, uh, defined as one-pointed concentration. So he, he, um, he didn't like that the eighth path was that samadhi meditation and that the first branch was a realistic worldview. I wanted meditation right away. Remember, he's American. I was impatient to get out of the world. I was tired of ideas and I wanted to get away. I had had enough. Being so impatient meant that starting with the realistic worldview was very difficult for me. I did it though. I soon relished the first branch realistic worldview. Seeing it as indispensable, and that's what we call right view, seeing it as indispensable to the other seven branches – realistic motivation, speech, evolutionary action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and samadhi concentration. I loved all eight of them and wanted to fold them all up in the eighth samadhi meditation. I was frustrated at that point by my teacher. He skipped passages in Nagarjuna's book we were reading, those on uh, the uh, jhanas and samadhi, those meditative kinds of things. He skipped the details. I did love that book, and there was a funny thing. When I read it in Tibetan, I felt it viscerally, but in English, after we translated it, I didn't connect to it in quite the same way. Maybe again, that was some memory impression from a former life. In my first popular book, Inner Revolution, I talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of real happiness. That's the subtitle. Since I was fitting Nirvana in with Thomas Jefferson's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. People focus on the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, even Buddhist teachers since it fits with the miserableness of people. It's amazing how people feel anxious but safe being miserable. After all, what we call happiness is usually illegal. When you feel really happy, you feel frightened or at least nervous. I'll repeat that again. He says, when you feel really happy, you feel frightened or at least nervous. We are indoctrinated to think this is a dangerous letting down of our boundaries. It's too intense, like an orgasm. It's too high and it will lead to a downfall that will come afterward. People look at you dubiously if you're too happy. Just imagine this, your parent and your kid comes home and says to you, I'm so happy. The world is so beautiful. Everything is wonderful. Are you happy? No, you immediately ask your child, what happened to you? Are you on drugs? Are you drunk? You freak out. You have difficulty accepting that they can be happy for no reason, that they can have this inner feeling welling up from their heart, that they feel truly happy and you can't believe that there are no dangerous side effects. If you do manage to accept it in someone else, you feel left out. Subconsciously or consciously, you are jealous. You think, what about me? Why aren't I happy too? The truth, the announcement by Buddha under a tree, is that the actual reality of the world is itself freedom from suffering. He is saying that it is bliss already. He doesn't make too much of a fuss about it at first, this cessation of suffering. He tends to cater to the immature first level of hope that is kindled in the egocentric person who is sunk in the well of habitual suffering. So let me read that sentence again. He tends to cater, now this is the Buddha's first talking talk. He tends to cater to the immature, first level of hope that is kindled in the egocentric person who is sunk in the well of habitual suffering. I don't mean that moralistically, I'm talking psychologically. I'm making a structural statement about someone who thinks his or her center is real. Such a person cannot imagine one's being in total bliss while still being connected to all else. Such a person sees relief from suffering as a kind of disassociation from everything else, just as I did. Fortunately, he says thanks to uh, the Mahayana path to his teachers and to the Dalai Lama and later his wife, his home guru, he eventually overcame this idea that the state of nirvana is outside the world. For some people though, some of the time, it's not a bad thing that they think that. And certainly, even though the bodhisattva is still in the world for the sake of others, being utterly free of his or her own suffering, it's just like being in another place, a different world entirely. That's why non-dualistic Buddhist teaching can support a dualistic approach. So I think uh, that certainly is true for me. When I first started studying the teachings of the Buddha, um, I my concept of uh, total spiritual liberation was the concept of a kind of heaven. It was a place to go and it, it, uh, that didn't quite make sense with other teachings so it took, a, it took a while for me to really clearly realize that that liberation is in this world. It's when we see clearly and we see our connection to all things that that's uh, the liberation that we can attain. So I want to skip over a few paragraphs because I think that that would be a whole long that would be a good discussion, but maybe not while we're kind of just reading high points from this book. Just a few paragraphs, though. So this is on um, this is in his section called Theravada Buddhism and Absolute Happiness. So I'm just reading some parts of this before we stop. The fundamental predicament of self and other is that when self and other are seen as intrinsically really different, the encounters between them are married to so much painful contact with so many sharp edges. During countless lifetimes we have been, according to Buddhism, during countless lifetimes we have been killed, eaten, and tortured by other beings and we have reacted to others by developing internal sicknesses. Understandably, this leads to a deep instinctual fear of encounter with an other. We certainly see that in the world today, right? There's this, this uh, uh, he uses the, there's so many sharp edges be- because of all of the the encounters between the self and other. There are so many painful sharp edges and they are highly problematic. The second noble truth, the cause of pain, is the delusion about the absoluteness of the separation, the separateness of self. That is, the delusion regarding the intrinsic objectivity of the self. This becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When one is under this delusion, contact with others does tend to become a bit stressful. If we can make our own body into something separate in our minds, then everything else is suffering. So at the beginning of my practice, I was trying to get away from the whole thing. What I didn't know then, and had never heard of, was that the negative result of that kind of mistaken view is found in the teachings as attaining the cessation of sensation and conception at the wrong time. I had never heard of this and didn't know what it was about. But from my present vantage, I can now understand the great kindness of my teacher and his incredible skill. Because I think I had a kind of dualistic experience of the nibbana or nirvana threshold states, which are called the four formless or immaterial trances or absorptions. When we well, we refer to them as the jhana states. Anyway, I was so into the development toward this realistic motivation, full liberation. I felt I just had to become a bhikkhu or a monk. And then he talks a little bit about his struggle with his teacher. His teacher kept telling him, no, no. He could he could live like a monk, but there was no need for him to become a monk. The key is to create whether you're a monk or not, he says, the very key is to create a new form of super education, to create a big change in our society and radiate it out from America throughout the world, not through military regime change and so forth, but through art, the art of happiness, of joy, the art of mindfulness, yoga, and meditation. In this magnificent enterprise, India, its civilization and complete culture as restored by the Tibetans bringing back India's own long-lost Buddhism, is our key ally along with all the indigenous Earth-centric cultures of the planet." So that is his take. So he's looking at realistic motivation, that realistic intention. Sometimes we realistic intention, uh, as we sometimes narrowly defined it, is uh, renunciation and uh, loving kindness and letting go of all ill will. So, and and his is more about realistic motivation as seeing that. Nibbana is this is being in this world, seeing our connection to all things and seeing realistically, seeing beyond all of those all of those traps we have in our mind from our past experiences, maybe from past lives, that keep us from wanting to feel connected to other beings, to, to the world itself, uh, that keeps us from wanting to have this a separate, some kind of separate separation from others so and remember if you have questions it's it's completely wonderful if you'll ask them and i'll try to try to lead you in the right direction i might not be able to answer your question um i think when we when if you are familiar with the teachings at the Blue Lotus, I think where there's always an effort for us to see the connection to all the other beings. So there's a lot of, the, uh, you know, I think a lot of Theravada and teaching, teachings are very uh, clear that Nirvana is not, Nibbana is not a separate place. It's a state of mind and it's uh, that we are all connected. And I think, I don't know if, uh, Robert Thurman would call that that some overlap, but it's as far as I can see, it's it's overlap that's been there as long as I've been aware of the teachings. So let's try to sit, and I uh, will sit for a while, and then hopefully you can continue if you found a if it's a good time for you and you have a relatively quiet place, they're plowing uh, the sidewalks in the parking lot. So we had some noise from that, but that's, that's typical winter noise. That's part of, part of nature around here. So let's just sit for a while. Close your eyes if you can. I think the main idea, regardless of uh, the kind of teachings that you're drawn to, is to find the common principles in them. And this principle of this connection to all things and all beings, I think is one of the most important. That we are not... uh, that we have this separate self, this body, but this body and this mind, is we are still connected to all things. And our goal is to work with the mind so we can purify it, and that will help our awareness just become better and better. We, we, will, we step away from all of those limitations that we've created in our mind, and we can just see things, the way they are we don't have to bring in old prejudices or old uh, old experiences we can be fresh all the time and now just let everything go Feel your connection to the earth. Be in your body. Let your mind just drop down into your body. Let go of busyness, either from before we started or things you have to look look forward to. Just let that go right now. And just be. And that means we let go of trying to fix things or people or change. Let go of that kind of persistent need that we have to change ourselves or change somebody else. And just be right here and right now. Relax into your breath, into your posture. But let your body feel lifted up at the same time. Continue to sit, if you can, before I leave. We can share merit. May everything we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit and our own happiness, but also be sent forward to all beings everywhere. May all beings be well, feel safe, and be truly happy. And thank all of you for being part of my practice, and I'll be back on Tuesday.